Krishna, at Fiddler, your mission is to build trust into AI. Why did you decide to focus on this problem? Yeah, trust in AI. Um, it's a pretty important topic these days, huh? There's uh, an explosion um, in terms of uh, AI technology as we see in front of our eyes. The complexity of AI is growing. It's more and more becoming magical, right? And it's you know, good and bad in some ways. You know, The good part about it is we are seeing the kind of applications that it's able to, you know, support, you know, all the way from, you know, magical applications like ChatGPT that can give you human-like answers to like more, you know, you know, sort of concrete business applications that can help you catch fraud or, you know, suggest product recommendations or, you know, things like that. But the the downside as AI becomes more and more complex is it is it build it is becoming a black box, more and more of a black box. And 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 so for humans to be able to use it, um, uh, you know, it it's that sort of uh, creates a big transparency and trust hurdle, right? So imagine um, if you are a financial services institution and you want to use AI to predict credit risk scores, you know, and suddenly you know some customers were denied a loan, you know, why? How do you how do you know whether uh, how the AI actually came to that conclusion? Or you know if if you have you know flagged a bunch of transactions as fraudulent, you know why were they classified as fraudulent? Or if a chatbot is producing certain content, how did it actually get that content? You know, so those are all the questions that we get as humans. Because at the end of the day, human beings as a species, we were able to scale this far because we were able to you know amplify trust. You know amongst people you know a billion people in india can be governed by one single person <laughs> you know it's it's in the world operates with trust right hundreds of thousands of people can go and watch a soccer match you know without having any you know problems because there is an in, in, inbuilt etiquette and built you know trust assumptions so that's where we are now we need to, that's where the problem of transparency around ai and machine learning comes to because as humans we need that to be able to use things in our daily lives. And speaking about black box, one of my friends said that the deeper you go into the way the AI system works, the less you understand about how they work. Oh, that's at least his impression. And he is working on AI systems. So that's his bread and butter. I think it's a very interesting problem, and it definitely never existed before. When we were writing algorithms to solve problems as a computer code, we always knew how the algorithms worked, or at least we could kind of go debug them and find the places where the problems were. It's totally different right now, and it looks like there are some intrinsic reasons, the design reasons for that. So I wonder, how do you see this field and this issue of design reasons and what to do with them? And based on that, how do you see the future of these models? Yeah, I mean, you know, this 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 is actually a very interesting question, right? You know, can we ever be able to truly explain AI, you know? Um, that's kind of the holy grail for explainable AI tools like Fiddler and companies like us. I don't know. The answer is like, you know, because the thing is, it's it's like explaining human brain, right? So let's say if you make a decision, uh, you know, I, I can ask, you know, Artem, why are you doing this podcast? You may have some reasons and you say, why did you select this topic? You may have certain other reasons. So I can go on asking hundreds of questions. and And so the more I ask those questions, the more I know about you, right? But I may never truly be able to know how you arrived at those conclusions of, you know, coming up with this podcast and whatnot. But I will be able to get some, develop some intuition around, you know, why you're doing certain things. And so the core purpose of explainable AI is to create that intuition, develop that intuition amongst humans. You're using the AI products to understand at, at, to some extent how they, how it's working. 
and that gives us comfort that gives us ability to trust that gives us ability to you know use the product um this is definitely better than no explainability and complete black box right and and as explainability techniques evolve one of my dreams is by being able to explain complex ai you will also be able to know how brain functions you know you now this is whole uh, neuron level explainability techniques are coming up where you can figure out how neurological pathways get fired up in a deep neural network to come up with the you know prediction if some image is a cat or a dog you know and as you know as you kind of understand those things you know you can develop intuition around how you know your brain works as well having said that i think the core purpose of explainable ai is to bridge bridge that gap right it may never be able to completely bridge it but you know answer as many questions as possible and so that the human at the other end can develop intuition around the model and and then can uh, successfully use the model in their workflow and that's what you know we 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 are we are doing with fiddler right and that's important certainly for certain use cases use cases like you know um, you know there are already in a regulated industry say financial services or healthcare where the stakes of a wrong ai decision are high you know where if i deny you a loan or you know or, or a mortgage or or a job or perform a you know an incorrect clinical diagnosis using ai that stakes of that decision are much higher and so explainability becomes very important whenever you are you know in those situations versus um, you know if i show you a wrong ad uh, on a google search it's not a big deal right you know it's not uh, so 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 i think explainable ai becomes much more prominent when the stakes for the ai decision are very high um, and and i think it's then becomes more important for a human to deeply investigate what's going on even partly explainable system is definitely better than a complete Correct. black box especially if it currently looks like we will we may never be able to reach the depth the full depth of explainability there and your example of uh human brain is analogies just uh, kind of points us to the this very direction that the only places where we can't get full explainability is the artificial places like math that are based on some axioms and then we can say yes we arrive to the final conclusion but that's still based on axioms but we assume the axioms so it's fine and in the real world there are no axioms to assume or accept so yeah there is no way to get to the full explainability there uh, maybe absolutely that's that's where the user experience of providing this interactive explanations because one question will lead to 10 questions and then how do you, how many questions can you answer that's where it that's where it it's become so important so that the user can ask many many questions and develop that intuition talk about how you approach explainability so we understand that it's by design it's impossible to get to the bottom of it but it's better to have some level of it so how do you go about getting that depth of insight so it actually is funny it's uh, it it starts from the the how it kind of relates to the story of how we came up with the name fiddler you know we believed from the beginning that this interactive explainability is the way to go about answering questions and asking more and more questions so we believed the ability to give the user to fiddle with the various inputs that the model might be seeing you know fiddle with the text if it's a text classification model fiddle with columnar data if it's a model that is looking at structured attributes where you can change values of it you know add and remove words or you know increase income variable or reduce you know debt and see like the new credit score so being able to ask a lot of counterfactual questions and being and seeing how the model reacts is actually a very good start to think about explainable ai right and then a lot of the algorithms that we we implement are based on that foundation where you are perturbing the input space and trying to change the inputs and see the reaction in the outputs see how the other inputs are uh, relationship with the outputs are changing and then using sort of axiomatic you know algorithms like shapley values to come up with you know input feature importance 
uh, for each for each model a prediction right and so so it starts from that base layer where uh, you have a black box ai system it is taking a bunch of inputs can i fiddle with these inputs and create lots and lots of perturbations and see the changes in the output and then come back and attribute some sort of a marginal impact on on those inputs and so that's that's how we started um, so today we've supported fiddler both axiomatic you know uh, attribution based explanations where you should get feature importance of this attribute is this much you can also change that variable value and see how the model reacts to it so that that way you can keep asking more and more questions and start being more comfortable with the model so it's automatically feeds into the model all the perturbations so for example financial services it would supply it with large number of different credit applications and it will try to see how the model assess different types of applications depending on different parameters and develop the overview for uh the team that's running the model so they can look at it and say yeah these are the right ways to react to the changes of these parameters but when these parameters change it should not affect uh the decisions that way correct correct and so so there is a nice uh, uh axiomatic sort of uh, algorithm behind the scenes here uh, i can go into it a little bit uh, so this this person lloyd shapley was researching on cooperative game theory in 1950s right so the problem he was trying to solve was uh, you know let's say two players a and b start you know a company and and they and the company starts making profit now they want to decide how do they split the profit amongst each other and the question was like how what is a fair and appropriate way that you can split that profit now so shapley suggested that if you run a simulation where a started the company first and then it started making some money and then b later joined and then the profits improved then you know like the marginal contribution right you know for a and then b joining later and then if you can then simulate it so that so that if if b were to start the company first and a joining later what would have been the outcome and then what you then can do is for each of these simulation you take across all of the simulation you take an average marginal impact of each player so in both cases you take the marginal impact of a uh, and both cases you take the marginal impact of b and he called that shapley value and so there he proved some really nice uh axioms behind it one was um sort of if the, the shapley values of a and b if you add them up they basically should come up to the total revenue that the company was making and if both had equal contributions they would get equal shapley values if one had near zero or no, no kind of a dummy contribution then they would get a zero shapley value so so that was we really beautiful and actually got a lot of usage in various different domains including elections and you know uh, economics and various different places and recently it found its application in machine learning where in this case um, the model is the game and the model's prediction is the score and you're now trying to attribute how you split that model's prediction in terms of what is a fair and appropriate way which of the inputs have influenced that to how much and so the shapley value of each of the input becomes the attribution so if you have a model let's say it's looking at income previous debt and loan amount that you're requesting to come up with a probability to accept or reject a loan then that probability can then be attributed to these things say uh, if the probability is let's say is low and you're denying it denying the loan now you can say 20% of of that probability is coming from current income 30% is coming from previous debt 50% is coming from loan amount and so you can then come up with like this attribution the nice thing because you're running these simulations is it's taking into account the interactions between those features so in a lot of people talk about hey you know are you looking at only individual you know absence of feature and presence of feature or are you taking into interactions because you're running many of these simulations with various different income values various different debt values various different 
you know, sort of uh, loan amount, requested values, you will get the interaction baked in into the Shapley value. So it's it's actually surprisingly effective in in in, in providing a stable attribution. Let's try to bring you up an example, maybe to illustrate the usefulness of that. So how, for example, say I'm an, again, any type of company, financial company, or choose whatever you want. And I used to run my model, say, without the insight into the, into the one that we just discussed, into the Shapley values or the relative kind of contribution of uh, different parameters. And now... I have this insight. So, what kind of in, uh, what kind of uh, things I will change, or I will realize at least yeah. based on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, for, let's take this um, you know same credit risk example, right? So, you know these days fintech companies, in in addition to all the you know standard data that I just described, they also have a lot of unstructured data. You know what what previous credit card transactions that you've done. Or your social media profile, your you know LinkedIn profile, you know a lot of those things uh, can go into the model to decide the credit credit worthiness of this individual, right? And now when and, and when you then put all of these different data sets, you are in some ways using very complex models, right? So in some cases, you know deep learning models, you know that can take all of this structured and unstructured data to produce you know a score that can determine the credit worthiness. The you then the question is like because these industries are regulated, you know they have to be able to provide an answer to the customer. They cannot ship the model. Right? So if I deny you a loan, there is a certain thing called adverse action notice that I need to serve you as per you know why you denied a loan, and in that I have to highlight some reasons. And then if you you know ask for more, I need to be able to support you. And if you if you in for example. Uh, I need to be able to make sure that my model is not biasing against certain demographic, you know, because if it does, then, you know, I can, my customer support team will get a bunch of complaints and, you know, my company's reputation might get tarnished. Uh, we have seen that happen in the past as well, uh, where large companies rolled out uh, AI-based products and they found a lot of, uh, you know, issues with respect to bias. So there are a lot of places where either either in customer support or model validation or monitoring where you need to assess aspects of, you know, how the model was built, whether it's actually fair, why is it accepting certain loan applications, why is it denying? And that's where explainability plays a very important role, right? It is not only helping the modeler to build a better model, but it is build, helping the other teams that are working with the modeler, the customer support team, the business operations teams, the end user you know, to develop that trust so that they could use the AI-based product and, and and benefit from that. So that's kind of, that's the core kind of use case for explainability. And the organizations that do not use Fiddler today, how do they deal uh, with that issue of trust and of explainability? So we, that's a good question, right? So AI itself is still kind of in, you know, an emerging stage. So you know, there's still a lot of organizations that are, um, you know, starting to on their ML journey. So, um, but if you look at it, there are, in the in case, the way you can we really look at it, there are basically two types of industries that we serve. One is, you know, high stakes AI industry, you know, which which has regulations or is or developing high stakes AI. It could be government, defense, financial services, healthcare, you know, insurance. All of those cases where explainability is is very important, right? You can't really ship models with which you can't explain. And then there is like low stakes, a lot of commercial sort of use cases of AI. It could be, you know, gaming. It could be, uh, it could be marketing, mar- marketing technology. It could be, um, you know, kind of e-commerce and those cases where, you know, people might think explainability is not as important because you know no one is asking for that, or you know you can probably get away with it. But we, what we have found is, even there, explainability can help our modelers build better models and root cause performance issues, debug performance issues. So, for example, let's say you're building a chatbot, right? And you know maybe you're building a chatbot for a commercial entity, and now you would want to know how your chatbot is performing. You know you might you might want to root cause issues. Let's say if 
it produced a, a weird answer. Why did it produce that answer? Or it failed to detect the customer sentiment correctly. Why did it not detect that? Because knowing about what the model will help you, you know, fix those things. So, so, so what we are also seeing now is the rise in the need of explainability or people realizing that even in uh, somewhat of low stakes use cases, low stakes meaning, you know, low stakes from a human perspective, but, you know, higher stakes from a business perspective, you know, <laughs> you would still want to make sure your chatbot is working. And so that's where we are seeing the emergence of the need as well. How do you currently think about the best customer for you? I assume the higher the regulate, regulatory need or otherwise for explainability will be one of the criteria. Does the size of the customer play any role or what are the other criteria? Yeah, so uh, because Fiddler is a combined offering around model monitoring and explainability, we we serve both types of customers. So, for example, uh, at the from a long tail perspective, any customer that is deploying machine learning models to production is can or could use Fiddler to just monitor their performance of the model. So, at a basic level, you know the bread and butter use cases. You know, I have models running in production. I want to monitor them and I want to understand, I want to get alerts when performance deteriorates. I want to know when data quality of my features is poor so I could go and, you know, figure out what's going on. That's that's the basic bread and butter use case for us. And then, you know, explainability and fairness become important the more the stakes of the AI use case are. So, you know, especially if, as I said, if it's a financial services company or an HR company or a healthcare company or a defense organization where the stakes are higher for an AI or for a bad AI decision, then you get into uh, you know these things. But what our goal, our hope is that we can increase sort of the the coverage of that because people are now talking about responsible usage of AI, right? But what is responsible usage of AI at the end of the day? What does it talk about? It talks about that your data, your protected data needs to be, uh, you know, separated, right? You, you know, you have to make, make, you have to respect customers' data privacy. You have to provide some sort of transparency into your AI. You have to make sure your models are reliable, and you cannot discriminate, uh, you know, with your models, right? Now, that is essentially all the things that we just talked about. So, if anyone wants to build responsible AI. They need to have monitoring. They need to have explainability. They need to have fairness assessment of their models. So the good news is um, as companies think about embracing responsible AI, there is, they will automatically embrace you know, explainability and, you know, uh, in, in their model workflows. That makes perfect sense. And that makes uh, the market size each and Much every larger. company eventually right. because each Correct. and every company eventually will use ai in one way Absolutely. or another what are some of your favorite case studies of uh, fiddler implemented at your customers and what kind of impact on your customers you saw yeah we have uh two kinds of uh, use cases that are my favorite one is like basic you know bread and butter production model monitoring you know the quickest value that we have seen at least from two customers, one was an early uh, HR company, the, and then a recent fintech company was the moment they plug in Fiddler, they they can uncover data quality issues that may have been lingering along for a long time. You know, they may they, you know, when you have lots of models running in production, and your feature pipelines are generating data for them, and you are not monitoring your models, and the pipelines break up, and no one will know the impact of that, right? I mean, uh, immediately, right? So so one of the things that we have seen was whenever, when this HR company we worked with, you know, a few years ago, they, when they integrated Fiddler, they were able to quickly know, like, the features that were broken from the alerts that they were getting. Where, like, you know, we Fiddler automatically figures out, you know, feature quality issues. Like if a feature is sending null values or missing values or range violations, type violations, schema violations, lots of different things automatically detects them and sends alerts that, that hey, your features might be broken. You can look at it. And so it's the lowest hanging fruit that our customers capture right away. And it, it's big ROI for them because, you know, they can they can stay 
with peace of mind that their features pipelines are all being monitored and and their models are receiving correct data and if they are not fiddler will alert them so that we see quite common across the board you know recently as well a fintech customer sent us an unsolicited note that you know they were able to catch this one variable that their marketing team was logging that was actually incorrect and and it, it would have taken them weeks otherwise you know to because the models deteriorate slowly right you know the bad feature might come in but the model performance will deteriorate slowly and you would see the impact on your business metrics much later and then you start wondering what happened you know it, and then becomes like this whole big debugging exercise to figure out and with tools like fiddler you could just immediately catch them. so that's one the second thing is more around deeper insights through fiddler's explainability so when we work with large financial institutions um, one of our biggest customers was able to use fiddler to explain very complex models that they were building for credit risk use cases so as i mentioned early on you know fintech companies are evolving beyond simple structural attributes about credit worthiness going into unstructured data and then bringing fancy new algorithms and so this customer was exploring these you know complex modeling algorithms deep learning algorithms to assess credit worthiness and setting credit card limits and they built a model that was sort of having very high accuracy you know uh, that could yield them a lot of you know you know roi in terms of revenue but then because it's a regulated company they needed a way to explain how the model worked to their risk management teams and uh, so this is where you know fiddler came into picture they looked at a bunch of different open source tools um, couldn't really find anything that can work for them and and at fiddler we had developed this uh, sort of uh, explainability toolkit for hybrid models that can take both structured and unstructured so they could really explain the model very quickly and understand how it worked both at global level and local level and this helped them to get it past the risk management team so that's actually a very uh, favorite use case of mine from a regulated industry similarly you know a chatbot company that we work with they they use fiddler on a day to day basis to debug false positives whenever a chatbot may have done an incorrect action you know based on the question based on the user was asking and they would get this log of all the errors that the chat chatbot has made and the developers would then reproduce the errors using fiddler and try to try to like figure out what what went wrong with them and that reproduction cycle does it also rely on the perturbations of data so the fiddler kind of develops a bunch of alternative versions of the question and gets alternative responses and try to find which parts of the question triggered that issue right that's a great question so that comes on a little bit into adversarial testing and robustness testing of the models and uh, we are actually actively working on that and uh, yeah definitely you know for example with this chatbot we are helping them with you know if the if the question was slightly different what would have been the response from the model and then come up with all the different variants of it and see where it breaks uh, and this is also useful you know just even when you are developing the model itself you know if you can find out let's say you've developed a model and now you want to know understand the failure scenarios of the model this can be useful even in development time uh, but yeah for sure i think that's uh, certainly what we are working on uh, in terms of robustness testing of nlp models uh, but in this case it's more the one that they're using currently is more around local explainability of why a model triggered a false positive and and then when they trigger and they look at enough of those explanations they know enough they know enough insights to retrain that model so maybe it's not recognizing certain words or certain combination of words now you know what kind of training examples to feed to the model so that it can course correct itself so you can close that feedback loop and ship a better model to production so that's that's kind of where we are today helping them but definitely we are working on adversarial testing uh, as you suggested yeah adversarial part of it is very interesting and the bias part of it is very interesting as well because you can obviously perturbate the data in a specific way to introduce a bias in the data and then see if the system actually picks up on that bias and start behaving differently in the ways where it should not yeah yeah that's i mean so 
yeah, it has huge uh, opportunities. You know, once you can start, that's the holy grail, right? You know, if I'm a modeler, the holy grail for me is tell me where it breaks. Right. And, and there is no easy way to answer that question. It's and a smart combination of brute force and some sort of uh, estimates or, is the way to go. And this is what you guys do at Piddler. The question I had about the unstructured data for the fintech company is along the same lines. So in order for them to test the model against unstructured data, for example, LinkedIn profiles or what have you, do you have to come up with alternative changed LinkedIn profiles? Or it's also relying on more of a human brain, like in a chat example, to just look at the ones uh, on the LinkedIn profiles that trip the model up, and then the human can figure out what is the common thread there. Yeah, that's a very good question. So we don't actually come up with our own data sets. Um, so the way these things work is the customer already has curated a training data set, right? And what the perturbation algorithms are trying to do is within the training data set, use the, use the training data set and randomization of the training data set itself to perturb the inputs. So for example, let's say, you know, you have, for let's say a very simple example is you have income column in your training data set. And, you know, the income might range from say, say $50,000 to $200,000. Now you have a range of values that you can perturb. And usually a lot of these perturbations are very, very minute perturbations. You're not like doing massive fluctuations of them, right? So you're, you know, let's say if the current loan application is the person has $150,000 in salary, you're perturbing around those and it's small perturbations that you're trying to see, right? And see the see the effect, robustness of the models to those small changes. And so, so that's what you're trying to do. So um, yeah, you're not, we're not trying to, bring in external data. Uh, today, we basically rely on the customer's data set itself and the algorithms work on using the customer data to generate new perturbations. It's clear how we can do that for structured data, but how do you do that for unstructured data? Yep. So for, look, an unstructured data would be a, could be a, a bag of words or it could be vectors of things, right? And And so there you are basically you know, replacing and adding and removing words and sort of like you're trying to like uh, use the existing data set to uh, re replenish those things, right? So, um, you're, yeah, so that's kind of how you would go about it. If it's like an NLP text, you're, you know, like what words you can add and remove from your corpus and you're you're doing that. And you can also work as you, I think, alluded to with embeddings. Correct, so embed, exactly. Unstructured data and then perturbate those embeddings. That's right. Makes sense. What were the some of the most important challenges that your team had to face and overcome to build Fiddler to the current level? Yeah, there were two challenges. One was uh, when we were developing uh, model explainability, we realized that models don't come in one format, right? I know, and it's still, there are a lot of different formats you have. TensorFlow, PyTorch, you have Spark, you have, you know, uh, and Scikit-learn, you know, so many different formats. And models also have different algorithms, right? You know, you have, you know, within neural networks, you have different algorithms, you know, tree-based algorithms, forest-based algorithms. So coming up with a, a pluggable model explainability engine where our concept was bring your own model and we'll explain it for you, right? So that was the concept. Now, how do you build a platform that can digest all these different models and create a unified interface of explanation? So we had to solve technical problems, technical challenge there, and also product challenge. The technical challenge was building a platform that can execute all these runtimes and execute ex explainability algorithms against these runtimes and being able to support these things. And, dynam and dependencies can change. You know, I can have TensorFlow 2.0, you can have TensorFlow 1.0. We can be both in the same organization. <laughs> Now, how do I use a single Fiddler platform for both? So lot, those are all the technical challenges. Product challenges is like, how do I display explanations uh, in a way that I'm not, we don't want to become a professional services shop where we are creating a, an explainer for you every single time, right? 
So the way we went about there was we we said, okay, instead of looking at the modeling algorithms, let's actually look at the data types. So let's actually look at, okay, what kind of data types do we have? There are only a small number of data types that exist today. There's structured data, which is basically tables. There is unstructured data. Within that, you have text, images, and I guess like as you can go on speech, video will come later, but like, so that's pretty much it, right? So then we said, okay, can we build a single interface that can we can use to monitor and explain models for structured data set? That solves like 80%, 90% of the structured models, right? Your fraud models, your churn models, your pricing models, you know, your ranking models, all of those models are structured tables. So you can have one single interface to explain them or monitor them. Same thing with unstructured, right? So your sentiment detection models, you know, your so so chatbot model so so that's that's kind of how we went about it um and so that made the platform a development from a product perspective simpler and so those were the challenges that we had to solve in the first you know couple of years the second biggest challenge was when we brought on monitoring uh, on top of explainability we needed to make it such that it can scale for really large amounts of data right you know um you know Model monitoring is actually monitoring the inputs and outputs of the model. You know, think about like you're receiving a fire hose of all the features that the model is receiving, and you're then monitoring them and monitoring the distributions. So initially, we went with like a kind of a push-based architecture where we pre-calculated a lot of these histograms and then you know and then basically uh, showcased the stats, but it had some advantages like the read time was quite fast because you could just read the stats that were already created, but it had scalability issues when we were ingesting large, amount, large amounts of data because, you know, our push-based architecture, I mean, we had to scale a lot more workers to be able to compute all of these things. And so recently we upgraded it to a pull, a kind of a hybrid architecture, but more pull, but it also has some push components to it. So in the pull-based architecture, we kind of developed um, sort of used a very highly scalable distributed data warehouse where all of the data can go in and, and then we'll do some partial aggregates, but a lot of uh, that calculation can happen on at, at read time. And and, and the, the nice thing about it is because, you know, monitoring charts are not, the you, number of, the read QPS is much, much slower than, much, much smaller than the write QPS. So, you can scale for it and you can cache it and there's so many advantages that you can have. So that was that was like a you know a big challenge that we had to overcome as we rewrote the monitoring architecture and made it really scalable now. This is a very important point and uh, I was going to suggest that it's because you only read parts parts of the data from time to time but you need to record all the data always. So it definitely makes sense to move processing to the parts that make sense to process and keep the rest of the data more or less raw. Correct. Okay. Those are definitely very interesting challenges and very fascinating challenges, especially when building at scale. And yep. I imagine scale right now is already sizable and it's going to be nice. much bigger in the future. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we have customers that are ad tech companies that are, you know, gaming companies that score models at really high speed. And so you, we have to record, you know, billions of events per day and be able to monitor those things. So, you know, yeah. So this new monitoring system is able to scale for that. Okay. Let's switch to the origins of the company and maybe we'll start even further uh, with your journey. So you spent time with, at Microsoft, Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, basically the who's who of uh, tech. So I'm curious, in each of those cases, what attracted you to join the companies? And what were the most important learnings from that experience? Yeah, it's a great question. So I came to the United States, you know, completing my undergrad in India. I did my uh, grad grad school in Minnesota. Uh, so I was working on data mining as part of my master's program. Very attracted to web search and in information retrieval. That was like a interesting application for data mining in those days, like clustering large documents and whatnot. 
so i wanted to work in a search engine so that was like my my kind of a dream job and so at the time microsoft was developing this search engine uh, it was called msn search at the time not bing and it was like a startup inside microsoft uh, it was like 25 engineers and uh, a small team that was developing it so it was really attractive you know to us to work in uh, to work on that and had the opportunity to join the team early on and i stayed stayed in search for 6 years a lot of my um, technical background comes from working in a search engine right so worked on uh, crawling indexing uh, stat- ranking uh, built features like auto suggest uh, and things like that auto complete so it was like a fun experience um, involved both the nice thing about building search engines in those days was it involved a mix of distributed systems work as well as algorithms you know and also we were uh, sort of dabbling with some neural networks not very complex ones but like two layer neural networks for ranking search engines so that was my first you know foray into the industry but then you know being an immigrant kind of going through the whole green card process and all of that once i completed all of that always wanted to come to silicon valley and be part of the startup world uh, that's that's been a dream so got an opportunity to join twitter when they were like very young like maybe less than 100 people and so uh, again joined the search team there and uh, we were working on like you know scaling twitter search twitter was going through this big scale out uh, period uh, where we were trying to kill the fail whale and all of that and and so as part of that uh, started also managing teams like you know built you know storage infrastructure stream processing infrastructure there and uh, and then later on went to pinterest uh, to manage like data engineering data infrastructure teams and so that's where kind of my it was like an interesting opportunity at pinterest because pinterest was a cloud first company unlike other companies that i was there so they built everything on aws and i had the opportunity to you know work with a lot of like new tools like startups that were coming up you know the and we would partner with quite a few of these companies and that's where the idea maybe one day i want to start an enterprise software company came out to me so it's as i was supporting these other engineers who were building companies i i i felt i could see myself doing that one day and then uh, after pinterest i spent some time at facebook I was working on explainable ai there and um, it was an interesting time at facebook um, um i joined after the 2016 elections and all the stuff that was facebook was going through at the time one of the big problems that we were trying to solve was like you know helping facebook understand how newsfeed worked you know questions like why is this story going viral why why am i seeing this story in my newsfeed and so we actually implemented lime as one of the first explainability algorithms in inside facebook and 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 showcased explanations in in what features are coming up as important for uh different um, you know ranking models so that's how i got into this field and i felt okay this is actually going to be a big area because uh it has the right kind of balance of it's a technically hard problem just as we discussed but it has social implications right you know it, it you know you, it, you needed to know how the models were worked especially if the models are being used to you know um, to suggest news and to change you know human um, um, sort of uh, consensus and consent forming and all of that and then and then um, it also i felt that it could be turned into a business and so that that's what motivated me to jump ship and start fiddler this is a common thread and very interesting development from that those early days working on search all the way up to al- ranking algorithm news algorithm is still kind of search problem you search for the best item the next item to serve to the user and so you kind of carried this search uh through all this career and now helping other companies build better algorithms i wonder from your experience working at microsoft everyone has their own take what it takes to build a successful search engine and why some search engines get very large market share versus others get smaller ones i wonder what's your take on that dynamic yeah i mean we realized it quite quickly into bing um so microsoft uh, um the strategy was we microsoft invested a lot in research and development so 
you know, Bing technology was very, very uh, advanced in the sense we were productionizing two-layer neural networks, RankNet, Lambda Rank, like some very advanced search quality algorithms. Whereas Google at the time, to our knowledge, was running much simpler algorithms. But the reason why they were able to do well on long tail queries was they had more data. And the secret was toolbar, right? So Google had this like toolbar installed on every browser and it, it, it captured all the queries. So every so as the more queries were used, it became this kind of rich get richer, self-fulfilling prophecy where you know the more queries that user Google would get, the more it was able to answer long tail queries. And so 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 the data sort of having large amount of data, having higher quality of data at the time in those days really gave them an unfair advantage over, you know, Bing, which which was, even though it had superior technology ranking wise, it couldn't, it couldn't really, you know, do well on, well on those uh, long tail queries. But I think it's interesting that things are turning now, like with the whole chat GPT and all, and with Microsoft's investment in, OpenAI, it could, it could, it could again start the search wars again, and we'll see how Bing will come up with like. Uh, it seems like they're going to integrate ChatGPT in OpenAI, and and then we might see an interesting sort of search war happening again. Uh, but yeah, so that was basically the things. You know, uh, you know, Google at the time had a lot of data, and that really helped them to, you know, rank search results much better with simpler algorithms than Microsoft did, even with fancier algorithms. The issue is that no matter how sophisticated your algorithm is, you cannot come up with the long tail of queries for your training, yep. for your training training stage. So you cannot train your algorithms to deal with that long tail, and they will not perform at the level of quality needed during the inference. Data quality is definitely super important. Um, although now things, in terms of size of the data, uh, things seem to be changing a little bit. Now there's like one-shot learning, zero-shot learning algorithms that claim to only see a small amount of data and really, you know, produce you know amazingly well, amazing results. So we'll see. I mean, um, because I mean, there's obviously they're relying on some foundational models which were trained on large corpuses of data again, but uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean, data quality is you know fundamentally super important, right? You know, you have the higher the higher your quality of the data, the more likely your model is going to do better. So that's just like the that's the golden truth. A few more questions about the way you've built Fiddler from the ground up. Now you have this idea, have this insight that it's going to be such an important field. How did you go about building your initial team? It's a good question. So initially, when I was searching for my co-founder, uh, I wanted someone with complementary uh, skills. Uh, since I was coming from engineering, ideally someone from product or business. Uh, and then I wanted someone who had startup experience, founding experience, because I didn't have much. I didn't. I had startup experience, but not founding experience. So fortunately, you know, I had this friend uh, from grad school. We 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 sort of uh, graduated together and he was a product manager at Microsoft and then went on to do a couple of startups had good, good exits with like you know PayPal and Samsung and and so we hooked up and I was basically I pitched him the idea and sort of he was excited enough to you know he was basically you know seeing some similar challenges and not at the scale of Facebook at Samsung the Samsung they were trying to, they were basically struggling to ship a model they didn't have a lot of good experimentation frameworks to know which model would work for their customers. And so they were basic MLOps challenges they were battling. And so he was seeing it from a product perspective. So he was excited enough to join us. And so that's how we both started. And then the founding team came from a lot of my network, you know, people that I worked with in the past, you know, previous companies, engineers, um, uh, you know, today and, and people, that, you know, sort of the second degree, right? So for example, our CTO um, sort of built machine learning platform at Airbnb, and he was working on kind of the trust infrastructure. And he faced similar issues, like when you're building models for fraud, model monitoring is so important because it's an fraud is an adversarial game, and you know you can you won't stop after one model, right? You know your adversary has already learned, and they are trying to develop something to attack you, and so it's a constant 
thing and you you have to monitor for drift very very important and so he was very excited to join us and our chief scientist he was like you know one of the very few people who had been working on you know fairness and ethical ai even they even if they even before they became really big right so he was working on linkedin at linkedin to build these like you know fairness aware ml platform and and he was very excited um when when we were trying to bring this whole sort of responsible ai and ml ops together uh, to join us and so that's kind of how the team formed and then we hired you know business leaders from various different um, you know successful um uh, you know startups um, you know confluent um, you know app dynamics you know vmware and you know that's 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 how the team got formed for many early members you didn't have to convince them about the importance of the problem they already saw it did you have to convince them about anything else i mean it, when we started it was it it took some selling i mean in the sense like there there are two kinds of people right like people who want to do a startup and people who don't want to do a startup and i think you can filter them out very quickly early on uh, startups are not for everybody right you know it requires a certain amount of commitment and you're doing it at a lesser pay you know you're, you're taking a risk and you're taking a risk if the you know if the company is successful it's awesome otherwise you shouldn't come into expectation that you're going to make you know tons of money with a startup right you know so 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 you you have to filter i had to filter those people out and obviously you know and, and also you need to go after people who are really awesome and really pitch hard to them and try to like make sure that they they can get excited so it goes both ways um when we started it wasn't a very established space you know people were still curious about what this explainable ai was and you know why you know i remember one one venture capitalist you know sat me down in in one of the san francisco cafes and she told me no one would use model monitoring because <laughs> because you know there are all these devops monitoring tools exist why do you want to build this you know model monitoring startup right so i think it took some time for people to understand that it is it's slightly you know it's like a actually not slightly but a much different problem than system level monitoring and uh, so you, and it was selling into a different audience there's a new market new category that we're creating and so it's that's that's how we got started yeah convincing that there will be a market is always hard because frankly very few people can actually know it for sure will there be a, mar- a market or not but yeah the people who had the first hand experience with the issues and actually knew that any existing tool mlops tool is ill fitted definitely is a good bunch of people to find your early team members from and in terms of uh, investors speaking about them so obviously that conversation probably didn't lead to su- successful partnership i did not yeah <laughs> but uh, how did you go about raising your uh, first critical capital to build up the system before you could prove that there is this huge market yeah i mean i think we went slowly right we we started with like a small seed investment and uh, we we pitched to companies who were you know basically who had who were interested in partnering with you know early stage entrepreneurs and early stage ideas that may not have market today but will have market later you know i, I you know we sort of you know went to lightspeed and you know we you know, lightspeed was was a pioneer in investing in a lot of enterprise companies that became very successful especially you know we were like you know we used like this phrase like you know we are building the app dynamics for ai and machine learning right and it's like hey you know eventually machine learning is going to be this transformative force where new applications will be built around ai and machine learning and you need a new kind of monitoring service to monitor all of those applications meaning models and to uh, and sort of uh, and make sure that those uh, apps are being built properly so that i think that really hit it off with them we also came with like a credible background that we were working on these things there and and so i sort of gave them enough confidence to trust us and you know kind of partner with us and then once we got lightspeed and you know, then lux capital joined us later like a year later um, and for, you know kind of led our series a and 
you know and then i think the real south by southwest moment for us was when the whole apple credit card issue happened late 2019 right so the whole industry exploded everyone became aware of the risks that ai carries right you know there's this whole sort of thing where even steve wozniak went on twitter complaining that you know they he he and his spouse got you know un- different credit limits and all and and when people were complaining to the customer support you know they were getting answers like i don't know it's just the algorithm so it just opened up the entire thing right so you know models needing transparency you know fairness assessment continuous monitoring just became front and center so that really gave us a lot of traction and started getting traction in 2020 with starting with financial services companies because you know everyone obviously saw the news of apple and goldman sachs and sort of wanted to be not making those mistakes and started looking for tools and that's how we, uh, we that was a, that was like actually a you know a good 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 thing that you know sort of created this in this this kind of category and then and then after that you know these things keep kept happening right so there's more and more news came that ai gone wrong kind of news right so you know whether zillow case study or you know something or the other have kept happening where machine learning models went wrong and you know hurt customer trust or hurt business and 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 just made the whole model monitoring sustainability become front and center it does look like for a lot of broadly speaking integrity type of solutions that monitor for security or or integrity of the systems reliability of the systems you need those adverse things to happen for the industry to start paying attention it happened again and again with each type of cybersecurity products and beyond so sometimes for the company in this field it is start early build out your product and wait for the right <laughs> moment to happen yeah right. Right. because exactly. you cannot start when the moment already happened right. uh, you you will be you will by that moment already late miss the boat yeah so you have to build it in advance and then hope for the moment okay sounds good on your personal journey note you are part of specialized types i wonder what it is and how did you get involved oh that was uh, it, it was basically um, kind of a group started by ex twitter engineers you know when a bunch of us like after the twitter ipo made some money you know we all you know there was like a bunch group of group of people who wanted to pull together um, a set of uh, uh, you know engineers who worked on different areas of twitter and who could be, uh, become potential advisors for uh, for other startups right so who are who are solving similar challenges maybe scalability challenges data infrastructure challenges mobile how do i build a mobile app how do i create data analytics so so that's how it got it started it was started by three ex twitter ex twitter engineers and uh, and uh, and as a as this group that would it's sort of like a micro vc in some ways and they would invest in small small amounts in startups and the carrot to the startups was say hey, you have these people that you know that are ready to advise you the advantage that i got being in that community was i was able to see like how you know um, investments were being made and you know get a peek into like the whole world of venture capital and and just like startup like founders and kind of what they're trying to solve for right so it was definitely um, it definitely really it definitely helped me when i started starting my own company because i had a little bit of a network that came out of that uh, experience and i could at least use that to leverage and pitch some ideas and get some feedback and and things like that you're less involved in this right now i am less in, i'm like a member i'm not the founder of this thing but uh, yeah, the three friends of mine started it and still running it uh, i think one of them is still running it get you now from that experience and also from your own experience of uh running building and running company what would be your advice to entrepreneurs starting an ai powered business today yeah that's a very interesting question and also specific to ai powered business um i mean the good news is ai has gotten into the consumer mind share right like you know thanks to you know 
thanks to all the news thanks to tools like chat gpt like everyone like regular people are now talking about ai and they are now seeing that it can be magical it can be it can it can actually make things that you did not expect it would do so so that's from a from a, from the outside it's actually a good time to start something that is ai powered the question is like you know i think the question is how do you how do you make sure that your product or the problem that you're trying to solve is going to be you know real painkiller versus just being a kind of a small vitamin that gives a small boost right so i think i think the, the key for any entrepreneur is going to be to find that problem that that is actually real pain that customers are experiencing or will experience in the future right and and either it's a white space area and you're entering with an ai powered business that it doesn't exist at all today or you're trying to transform an existing business area with ai and you think that it would really revolutionize and it's going to solve these these pains right so i think this is where i think we, entrepreneurs can get delusional right and it's it's kind of the vision and delusion go together in some ways and you know and, and you have to resist that part and you have to really answer the question whether it's actually going to be a painkiller or a, or a vitamin because oftentimes a lot of tools become vitamins they're nice to have you know and especially in this type of economy you know it's going to be hard for for for, for people to buy their tools or, or buy anything that is nice to have so i think focusing on make, making sure that you you're you're solving a real pain point talking to a lot of people you know pit, you know talking to potential customers i advise a lot uh, to learning their pain 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 points and problems is so important the other thing is also even though all of this noise is being made around ai also don't get enamored by ai as much as you're trying to solve this business problem if it if you're you can solve the business problem without ai or with a little bit of ai uh, you can uh, go and do that first you know because a lot of it may or may not actually need ai and so you have to really get that clarity or at least you should be absolutely sure that this problem does need a lot of ai and there is no way to solve it otherwise because then of course you're in a good position with Correct. all the ai power and Another thing that I think very important uh, that you mentioned about vitamins is that in the times of excitement, like we're going through now, sometimes it's hard to see that the thing is a vitamin because in other times you'd ship something that is not extremely useful. You will see it in the adoption figures. It's going to be zero. It will, it, during the hype times, you may see adoption spike first and that may kind of what you alluded to mislead you into thinking that oh i've built something very important while it's just the hype that will eventually go away and uh, then you will face the music so being able to identify that it's whether it's a real product market fit or just that curiosity phase uh, of the market i think is uh, very important here Absolutely, I mean, product market fit can take years to c- come by, right? So, but you you have to keep sensing it and keep iterating it. You have to keep iterate, and you have to also like be willing to pivot. You know, I think this is where you need. At the end of the day, I think the resilient teams, you know, that can actually sort of kind of go ahead and you know are nimble enough to iterate and also pivot slightly. You know, it, uh, and and are the ones that eventually succeed, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of hype and you need to go past all of that and solve I think if you can put a kind of like you know sort of borrowing this thing from Amazon right like it's just putting customers first and you know inventing for customers and trying to see like what customer problem you're trying to solve and that always helps. For our last question I think when you're reflecting on the your journey building the company what do you think you did very well one thing and one thing that you think should have been done differently yeah so i think uh, one thing that i did really well is i hired really good people i built a very good team and i think i'm proud of the team that i built um, and we also had to iterate over the team building you know you know as companies go by you may not attract the amazing talent right from the word go and i had to iterate the, and kind of keep improving the team and um, 
team that we have today is amazing and it, it's, i'm really proud of that right and, and also it it helped me in terms of like you know it gave me confidence along the way when i was able to attract other people you know it it also helps you as an as a founder that you are now actually kind of on a mission and you're being a missionary and trying to influence other people to join your journey right so this thing that i felt i could have done better and obviously a lot of things but the main thing was i think it's 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 about i think one of the things that as being engineers you know without a lot of enterprise or you know go to market experience is like you know you have to marry the product building with go to market very early on right and you have to sort of you have to really know what is the how do you how are you going to take the mar- product to the market and who are you going to sell and so that's the whole go to market kind of strategy and the product that you are building they are aligned together and it took us some time to get that you know kind of alignment because i'll give you something simple right so the first version of fiddler that we built was something that i could download on my laptop and use you know that's basically like your developer tool now a, a, a go to market for a developer tool is different from a large scale cloud service and so 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 we had to iterate and and sort of iterate and kind of get to a point where um, these two things match and so i think those are the things that we learned over a period of time where um you know this is so important now you know fortunately the market got created and we are in this and this is uh, we we have a product that fits well with the market and obviously they're improving it and scaling it but that's one advice i want to give especially for enterprise you know, entrepreneurs and building into the enterprise you know figure this out like early on offer the offering that your customer is willing to buy or sell in a way that the customer is willing to purchase or bill in a way that the customer is comfortable to pay uh, and this is very important especially for the if it's not a consumer product that we all fairly well understand how you should package how you should sell but an enterprise product that you need to learn about it a little bit and be surprised sometimes of idiosyncrasies of how the companies enterprise companies want to actually deal with the software products and some things that would sound weird to you are actually the ways they get used to do the things and they're not ready to do it differently even if you think it's a much better way okay i got you where can listeners learn more about fiddler and uh, where can they follow you on social media i know you're also continue to hire despite the cycle or anything so talk about the open positions as well yeah so you can visit us at www.fiddler.ai uh, that's our website you know if you want to reach me you can reach me at krishna@fiddler.ai that's my email i'm you know, i'm also active on linkedin and twitter you know you can reach me at, at krishna gade my first name last name together uh, on twitter Yes, we are uh, definitely hiring even in this economic cycle uh, we're definitely growing the team um, especially on the technical side of things we are hiring you know ml engineers um on our engineering team we are hiring support engineers um we are hiring uh, data scientists um we are um you know those are the some of the roles that I can remember the top of my head um definitely a lot of technical hire roles are being we are we're trying to fill right now uh, both here and also in india so if we are listening to this podcast out of bangalore or somewhere in india we have a we have a team in india which are we are growing as well so if you are interested you know shoot me an email or you can go to fiddler.ai and and look at the careers page sounds good we will add all the relevant links uh, to the show notes krishna thanks a lot for joining me today it was a great pleasure to talk to you